thank you for joining us today at 13th floor listen to a vet i'm professor susan watson turner this is richard best ceo wbn and we'd like to welcome our guest jamal simmons today the special topic on journalism and the influence of journalism in our lives i want to just remind you to join us on Spotify, and at Lehman College on BronxNet Radio. Hi, Jamal. Thanks for joining us. Hey, how y'all doing? Good. Great, good, great, good. great. Good. Well, you know, We Belong Network is about not just work by veterans, but for their families and friends. And so we're so happy to join you. With full disclosure, we will <laughs> say that you are part of our family, and, and we're Woo-hoo. so happy about that. Like the literal family, not just like you're like. Right. <laughs> 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 yes. But you're yes. also I am the uh, son-in-law, the honorable yes. son-in-law. So thank you for having me. And mm. the father of some beautiful grandchildren. So <laughs> yes. Yay. Lucky is part of the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. I can't forget my beautiful daughter. That's <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. But in addition to all of those great benefits, you are a renowned journalist. And we've been following your podcast and watching some of the interviews that you're doing. So tell us, how do you decide what you're going to cover as a journalist? You know, I try to think about what the audience might be interested in. So there's two, there's two parts to it. One is, who, who am I interested in? Because Frankly, I've done interviews with people who I didn't particularly find interesting, and they ended up not being that yes. great. <laughs> uh, so I try to think about, you know, what am I interested in and who do I think other people care about? And usually there's some topic that's happening in the world that people really do care about. And so I want to find kind of a, uh, a different voice on that topic than maybe you're hearing about on the mainstream news or who you're watching on television and listening to. So find somebody who can kind of speak to it from another perspective. Different voice. That's really interesting. How do you identify the different voice? You know, some of them are just people that I know. I've come across them in some fashion or another. I run into them along the way in life. And then other times there are people who have reached out to me and said, hey, I'm working on something. You know, would you be interested in this? And I kind of think like, oh, that does, does sound interesting. The more I think about it. Um, or... The other one is uh, I'm reading the newspaper and I'll see a story and I see, um, particularly if there's a young person or a person of color that's involved in the story. So it's a big story you're not thinking about, um, but there's a person of color who's back there. The one person, I tried to get um, somebody, there was a a congressional hearing a a year or so ago um, and there was a a African-American lawyer who was sitting behind the guy who was testifying. I think it was in the Kavanaugh hearing. Uh, it was sitting behind the guy who was testifying. And I really wanted to talk to that lawyer. Um, I, got, I finally got him on the phone. And then he told me that he couldn't do an interview. <laughs> so I did more. But uh, uh, I, was, I, was wondering, I was wondering who was that guy. And other people were, you know, on, on the internet, like, who's this guy sitting behind him? Who's this, you know, what's his name? So um, I thought that would be fun to have him on, but it didn't work out. It didn't work out that way. Yeah. It happens, too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But we get so much information, especially during an election year. Um, What is the state of journalism today? Um, Providing information versus influencing thought. Um, What do you see as the difference in today's electoral college uh, coverage, I'm sorry, versus 2008 um, when Obama was running? Uh, So 
you know, they're diff different people have different roles. I mean, I'm an opinion guy. So people know that I come at this from a democratic lens and, and um, I try to be very upfront about that. Um, there are other people who are, you know, a little more neutral and they try to sit in the middle and kind of do the both sides and get everybody's opinion on both. Um, so what I, what I do want to do though, is I don't really want to be a shill for the Democrats though. So I am trying to, um, find a way to ask some of the tough questions and ask to get them to talk about things, uh, that maybe they don't want to talk about or talk about them without just hearing the regular talking points that you're getting, um, when people are talking. So, um, I think people have different roles. Um, the biggest thing that's different between now and 2008 is how much social media has changed. I mean, social media has changed the entire game. You guys know this. I mean, right now, you know, we're talking on Zoom and, you know, we're putting up podcasts and everybody's, you know, all these different ways you can consume information. Um, you know, but we think about, you know, here's one question. Uh, how many times do you think Barack Obama tweeted in 2008? Hmm. How many tweets did he send out? I would say not many uh, versus uh, the prior, um, the current administration. So um, he only sent out one, one tweet, one, that was one tweet, the entire election. He sent out election day. He sent out a get out the vote message. Um, now that shows you the difference between where we were in 2008 when Twitter was so new to mm. where we are today, where everybody has a Twitter account. Everybody's following things on Twitter. Um, people, you know, the president of the United States, we just talked about, I mean, he's sending out stuff. You know, multiple times a day, especially late at night. And he just hate tweeting right. stuff all the time. Yeah. <laughs> what he had for um, breakfast and how he felt about it, right? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So, I mean, you know, things have changed a lot. And so one of the things that I think that does is uh, uh, it's, like a, it's like a 3D magnifier. So it, it really uh, focuses in on people, but also like a magnifier, sometimes it can be distorted. So you think that you're what you're seeing is reality, but really it's just kind of a distorted version of reality based on somebody else's lens. Mm -hmm. Right. So social media, do you think it's a benefit or a hindrance? I mean, sometimes, you know, you see things that are, have no basis of truth, mm -hmm. but uh, sometimes it's good to connect people and things like that. I mean, what do you, how do you feel about that? Yeah, I think it's both. So, uh, what I, but what I can't figure out if it's, if it's worth the trouble, ah. <laughs> right? If the good stuff you get is worth the trouble, mm. because what it does give you is it gives you the chance to connect with people that you wouldn't normally get a chance to connect to, um, stay in touch with people. I mean, so Twitter is the one place where people can build their own independent communities. You got black Twitter where people are having the most fun of anybody online yeah. <laughs> part or, or, or building them up. Uh, on Facebook, where you can stay in touch with people that you really don't have a chance to talk to a lot, but you mm -hmm. can still get a window into their lives. You know, I watch my friends and their kids grow up. Right. Um, you know, I listen, I see people with their, you know, oh, so-and-so got a new job. You know, but in a way that, you know, I probably wouldn't hear from them, except, you know, that annual Christmas right. letter. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> it gives you the ability to, to, to have that kind of community. But on the other hand, you can be manipulated in so many ways, right? Like you're getting information. You don't know where it's coming from. You don't know if it's true or if it's not true. And when you, um, and you don't know who's sending it and whether or not they're an honorable person. I mean, you know, we just had this whole thing with the president and the Russians. Uh, so we still don't know what role uh, the Russians play, you know, or some other outside power plays. Um, and we don't know what role if somebody's, um, 
you know, here's a great example. Right now, there are a bunch of accounts that are being taken down on Twitter of uh, quote unquote black people who support Trump, these African Americans for Trump. Oh, really? What they're finding is that these are all fake accounts. They're you not know. actually like real people. There's some troll farm, there's some place where people are setting up a computer system where they're just pumping out these tweets by people who say they're for Trump. And it turns out they're not real people. They're not real people. So it's not even like these are the Russians. It's just some computer that's generating yes. wow. <laughs> these messages. Wow. There's like, yeah, because yeah, who are all these black people for Trump? Where where they come from? Where are they? Right? Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> They're really just on a computer. Well, yeah. you know, as a you, because of our veteran community, and we're we're always trying to figure out how do you get to the bottom of that thing? Do we have to wait for you to tell us on your podcast that this is a fake account, or is there a way to kind of as a as a layman? figure out what is really true. So one thing that I do, um, I don't know if this is scientific, but you know, I get these messages from people sometimes. And um, if I, I go and look at the account, and if I see an account of somebody who's tweeted like 10,000 times, mm. they only have 25 followers. Okay. 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 That's a good <laughs> right? evaluator. Right, right, right. So right. they're not like, hmm, that looks a little suspicious. Little yeah. Spooky, huh? you know, or they're following, they're literally following 10,000 people or 5,000 people, but mm. they only have 20 followers and they're tweeting 10,000 times. Okay. And that yeah. says to me, like, there's something that's a little bit fishy about that account. Mm. Um, the other way you could do it is if you don't know the news source that they quote, so they say, oh, here's a story from, um, you know, Black World News, you know, organization. And then you're like, hmm, Black World News. I never really heard of that before. So go click on the click on the story and see Black World News if that's a real thing. Real if thing. there's anything there, you know, that makes sense. If it's an mm-hmm. actual news thing or just they're just pushing out stuff that doesn't make sense. And then somebody's just using a website address, you know, wow. to try to send out bad information. But there's no scientific way. But if you haven't heard of the Usually, if you've never heard of a news organization that is written the story, that's something to... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. Not, right? But the, I have a question about that also. Um, with that being said, how many people will go through the trouble of trying to verify that news source, you know? That's why we're in trouble. To, yeah, as opposed to allowing, you know, just letting it go and taking it for... Um, Verbatim. Or in, in influencing them. Yes. As well. And then they influence other people quoting a news source that's not reliable. That's right. That's why we're in trouble because people are, um, you know, people see some, oh, this looks interesting, or oh, wow, I didn't know that. You know, they send it out. And then the worst part is, you know, for some people, you got the president of the United States who is looking at some of this stuff and he's sending this stuff out to people as if it's real. So now somebody says, wow, well, the president said it. And if the president is pushing it out, then it's got to be real because if it wasn't, the president wouldn't do it. Even though now we find out the president's just sitting up looking at the same garbage the rest of us are. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) So how do we cure that? Is there is there a way to turn back? I mean, not with social media. We can't turn back the clock, of course. I know young people are very into it, especially. But how do we add some integrity to it? How do we get some or can we or can we yeah you know there's a push on the social media companies to try to get them to um you know verify or you know that some of the information is real or put tags on it saying you know this is from a source that we don't 
you know, we can't verify so people mm. can see that way. Um, there are some journalists who I've heard who are trying to create kind of a, a consortium where they will rate the news and they say, you know, a, a five is highly verified. A one is, you know, we can't tell where it came from. Zero, you know, we can't tell what it is. So people are trying to do that so it's independent. You know, the thing that's good about the about social media and the internet is, you know, I mean, I'm old enough, you know, you guys are to remember when you had three big, you know, networks, right? And then you had your local newspapers, there were one, two or three or four of them. Y'all lived in New York, so New York had a million newspapers, right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> the Amsterdam News, Newsday, you know, all those, all those places. But, um, but for most people, you know, it's one or two newspapers in your town, you know, three news channels. And so if you were somebody trying to get a story out or information out, if you couldn't get somebody to pay attention to it at, you know, Channel 7, ABC News, yeah. then that was it. Like, you were done. You know, maybe you could make some flyers and pass them out of church. But other than that, like, that, that was it. <laughs> Nobody's going to know, right? <laughs> right. Nobody's going to know about it. Now, you can go online yourself and you can push that information out and tell people about it. And if you get enough people to follow it, it might actually get some traction and some reporter might pay attention to it. And now it can become a story. So that's the good part of it mm -hmm. is we're not captive to three or four or five, you know, CEOs sitting in an office somewhere deciding what we all get to know. Mm. On the other hand, there's no way for us to know the difference between something that Jamal Simmons made up and something that, you know, you guys have actually verified and sent out because it's a real true story. Well, I used to work for a guy and he came in New York and he used to come in every day with all the papers. <coughs> he bought the Post, he bought mm -hmm. the Times, he bought the Amsterdam News. He bought the one they published in Queens. Is that a way to really find? He and I would ask him, "Why do you buy all these papers?" Yeah. And he says, "Because I have to read all of them to really get the story. Because yeah. there's a piece and there's a perspective in each one of them that's not in the other one." Yeah. Can we still do that today? I mean, it'd take a lot of time because there's so many sources, I guess. Yeah, and if you can find them, I mean, I try to read an actual newspaper every day. Really? Um, I still get the, I get the New York Times delivered. Um, when uh, I talk to young people who ask me when they start kind of what, what they should read, mm -hmm. the one thing I tell them, I don't expect them to read the New York Times or the newspaper every day because that's just not how they live. Mm -hmm. But I do tell them what they should read is the New York, the Sunday New York Times every yes. week. Okay. And you should sit there and read it like it's a school assignment and try mm -hmm. to get through some piece of every section. Just so you can get a sense. I mean, I probably don't read the travel section that much, but like, you know, but I try to like read through the art section, get through the news section, because it's a good kind of roundup on what's happening, you know, and from a bunch of different kind of perspectives. Mm. And then the rest of the week, you know, you're just getting a lot of stuff on the internet, the story that pops up. But the dangerous okay. part is that these, uh, the news sources, Google, Facebook, what they do is they track you online, not just when you're on their site, but they track you when you go to other places. And so they see what you're interested in. Then they build like a profile of you and they share news stories that they think you'll like. So, so the danger of that is, yeah, people think, you think that you're seeing like all the news, but then you don't really know that your news is being curated by some computer service that's only giving you the things they think that you're gonna like. So then when somebody gives you a piece of information that sounds like it's very different than, than uh, what you read every day, you don't believe it. Cause you're like, right. I yes. read every day. I yes. see all the 
all my research and I, da, 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 da. Right. <laughs> and, you know, but you've been manipulated all morning, like for the whole day. So right. We are getting just dumped on really. And with all of the mm -hmm. algorithms and everything mm -hmm. that figure those things out about it. Right. So the power of information, the term fake news gets thrown around a lot in social media, um, bombards us often with unconfirmed information. How should black and brown communities evaluate what it is that we hear or read? Yeah, I mean, you know, fake news is particularly thrown around um, for sure by the um, by the president. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah, I don't want to get too political, but I mean, that's the thing that he, you know, that's like his. That's where it came from. If news he doesn't like, then it's fake. Like that's, and I think that's the danger that people have. And I got to say, it's, it is one thing I am concerned about. Susan, I know you're on um, college campus, and I know there's this idea that we have to create spaces for people that that the information they get has uh, warnings on it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I don't want to come off like a conservative, but I but you know I do you? Think, <laughs> I do think that people need to be challenged to get ideas that they don't have. When I was yes. at uh, Morehouse. There was one professor who was there. He was an older white guy. He taught European history. And people would always complain about him. You know, I, you know, most of our professors were African-American. He was a white guy in the history department. He taught European history. He taught some stuff in American history. And people, oh, Dr. Klimborg, he's just da 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 And Klimborg said, I, I'm not here to confirm what you already believe. Hmm. I'm here to give you another perspective. Yeah. Okay. And then you can decide what it is you believe once you know as much information as, as you can about what's out there. And I feel like that's what school's supposed to be for. And that's what, you know, information is supposed to be for. Sometimes I watch Fox News just because yeah. I want to hear what the other people are saying. Yeah. And sometimes I learn something because yeah. they're, yeah. you know, they got somebody on there who has a different perspective or some different facts yeah. that they're bringing to the table than what I'm getting in the other sources. Great. Well, we got to take a break here for about 30 seconds for PSAs and sponsorship. Pay the bills. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Pay the bills. Yeah. That's great. My name is Mikaela. I joined the Army at 17. When I came back from Iraq a few years ago, I became pregnant and ended up homeless. I didn't have my own place, so I stayed at my sister's. I stayed at my stepmom. I actually stayed here on this bed at my grandma's house, and I stood right here in my grandpa's spare room. But I was running out of options until I finally found this transitional house. It was for women veterans with children. Do you remember when we used to sleep on this bed together? Some of the other women there would help me watch her while I worked and went to school. And then we moved into our own place. It was through VA supportive housing. I remember our first night here. I felt like I could finally breathe. My life works now. I got help from VA, and now I'm on a mission to share these resources with other vets who face homelessness. If you're a veteran at risk of becoming homeless, call 877-424-3838. I am not a hero. I'm not a hero. I'm not a hero. I'm a veteran. I'm a veteran of the United States Air Force. Army. Navy. Marine Corps. Coast Guard. I wanted a better future. I wanted to go out into the world. To make a difference. I wanted to fight. To stand up. To protect. To bring freedom. To put my life on the line for something bigger than myself. But war sucks. I hate war. War is cruel. War is death. 
I never knew if I was going to live. If I was ever going to see my family again. My wife. My husband. My daughter. My son. My mother. My father. My brothers. But I kept fighting. And I kept wanting to make things right. That was my dream. My hope. To fight. To win. Now I'm back home. I feel alone. Misunderstood. Judged. Misrepresented. Stereotyped. Forgotten. I feel guilty. And some days, nothing happens. Nothing. Nothing. Some days, all hell breaks loose. And I'm right back there. Surviving. Fighting. I can't relate to most people. They want me to be okay. They want to help. I don't want pity. But I appreciate respect. I want to know that I made a difference. I'm not a hero. I'm a veteran. I'm not weak. I'm strong. But sometimes I need help. But I will keep fighting. So thanks. We're coming back now here with our segment two where we talk about the power of information. And you mentioned, um, because I am a professor at Lehman College and my uh, journalism students will be watching you and listening to you and making comments on your <laughs> perspective because you're in the business. Yeah. But um, what's the, let's talk about the power of the, you, you called yourself, honestly, an influencer. That's a very powerful position to take, isn't it? It is, and it takes some responsibility because even though I have a perspective, uh, like I said, I, what I don't want to do is be a shill for somebody, number one. And number two, I don't want to put out bad information. Okay. And every once in a while, you know, you do find, you get information that you, um, that you have to correct because you realize that something you said or did was wrong. And it's always better for you to correct it than it is for somebody else to catch it. <laughs> and then they have to uh, correct you on it. But if they do catch it, and that happens to me sometimes, somebody will tweet me back and say, you got this wrong, here's something else you should read. Hmm. And then I try to, you know, I come back and I try to let, let the audience know um, what it is that I've found out. Um, you know, in my previous life, I was a press secretary for a lot of Democrats and so uh, candidates and people in office. And um, it's one of the rules that I always have for people who work for me and people who I would do trainings for other Democrats, other young people who wanted to be press secretaries, mm -hmm. is, you know, you don't, first of all, you should never lie because uh, lying, you get caught in a lie, your credibility is shot. Yeah. Really almost impossible thing to ever get back. Mm. But you will make a mistake from time to time. And if you make a mistake, it's your job to fix it and make sure people know. And frankly, the audience is usually pretty forgiving if they know that you're the one who is kind of monitoring yourself. And they're saying like, oh, you know, that guy, he got that wrong, but he did, you know, he tried to pick it up. You know, they'll give you some grace for that. So mm -hmm. better for you to do it than somebody else. Okay, but Unless as you're a, Donald Trump, in which case, you know, you just say whatever you want. Yeah, right. <laughs> and people, right, people get mad about it, and you just say something else tomorrow. Right, and he doesn't yeah. apologize no. at all, at all, at all. Okay, but as an influencer, um, your perspective is very important. So people would like to know, first and foremost, are your perspectives being guided by any particular way? I'll leave it like that. <laughs> um, I would say it's being guided by a philosophy, right? And, and, um, and that philosophy is one, um, I believe in outcomes more than I believe in process. 
right? So I'm willing to be flexible on how we get to a result, but I'm pretty, I'm pretty clear about some of the outcomes that I, I want to get to. Um, meaning usually for me, that means how are we going to take, how are we going to get more people, more resources, more access faster so that they can do the things they want to do in their lives? I mean, one of the things that I've learned traveling around the country and traveling around the world is that I do think most people are up to the same thing which is that we're just trying to figure out how we take care of ourselves, how we take care of our families. The yeah. conflict comes when how I think my family is going to do best conflicts with how you think your family is going to do best. Mm. And then we end up having an argument about that. The beauty of democracy is supposed to be that we settle those conflicts in the courtroom or we settle them in a political campaign or we settle them in a, you know, um, in legislation mm. uh, that's being, that's being debated. Um, the danger now is because some of the people who are involved in public life is that that they want to fight those things out in in on the street, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got people who try to get guns, and we got people who recently just tried to kidnap the governor of Michigan. The governor of Michigan in 2020. I mean, mm-hmm. they're plotting to kidnap the governor of Michigan. They want to try her, and then I assume the trial for treason, and I assume punish her for that. The punishment for treason is death. Yeah. So if if they got what they wanted, we would have had to live through a sitting United States governor being tried on the internet by a bunch of hooligans and terrorists, white extremist terrorists, yeah. um, who wanted to take on the government. I think that's a pretty scary prospect. For where Very we are. scary. But um, you know what? Our political climate nowadays is um, pretty much forcing a lot of people's hands pro and con. Mm-hmm. Okay, so... Um, it's hard to differentiate um, why people do things and what is right or wrong. So maybe you can clarify for us um, the process that um, you have to go through to uh, sort it all out. Um, what do you mean? We talk about trying to figure out what's right and wrong. What do you mean? Okay. The well, some people, let's say the pro uh, right. Mm-hmm. Uh, think um, having right. yeah is right that's right and running around with guns is a good thing um, protected property that's not theirs is a good thing and then there are those who are on the left or on the other side uh, who say that's my property and I never asked you to do that yeah well you know I, I so I look at it like this first of all um, what appears to be the case is that they're a group of white men who refuse to let anybody ever tell them what they can or cannot do. Right. <laughs> right? <laughs> and so anytime the government tries to tell them they can or cannot do something, um, they go into full, you know, open <laughs> revolt. Yeah, about it. Yeah. Um, and I think that's particularly clear, particularly true about, you know, one segment of white men in American society. Uh, but for me, the question is, do we have, you know, it's not just policy, but it's also people. Are there people involved who are helping to make this decision that are trustworthy, or at least I feel like they have other people's objectives in mind, or are they all just trying to get paid on their own, right? And I think when you see that, that's something that you have to be nervous about. Um, but uh, I think some of the people on the right, are, are they make a lot of sense. I'll give you one example. When, when Barack Obama, President Obama, was trying to get the health care bill passed, the Republicans pulled out of the process, right? They didn't want to be a part of the process. Right. So the Democrats built the process for, themse- uh, for themselves. 
But what happened was because they didn't have Republicans there who represented certain interests, some of the things that got included in the health care bill were things that didn't make a lot of sense. I'll give you one example. That was a big deal. Um, they made a rule that if you hire a contractor or you, if you uh, outsource anything, that you've got to make sure that those people have health care. Right. So if you're paying your taxes, we all have to say on the tax form, yes, I've had health care. If you don't, you pay a penalty, all that. They wanted to make it so that it's your responsibility to determine that for your employees. Now, what they meant was if you have a housekeeper or if you have a, a child care worker or a home health care worker, take care of an elderly parent that you're supposed to figure out, make sure that person has health care. But the way it was written, it meant you had to figure that out if you paid Con Ed or if you pay the phone company, or if you pay- people have healthcare, right? Yeah, any company that you paid money to, right. you had to get some kind of uh, uh, paperwork from them swearing that they provided or had healthcare. Mm -hmm. There's no way you would have been able to do that. You hire a plumber to come in and fix your you know, toilet. You gotta get that person's healthcare status. Mm -hmm. There's no way you could have done that. I think that's because you didn't have Republicans there who were thinking about how some of these things play out from a business standpoint. They could have said, oh, well, we could change this language and make it work. They ended up having, they ended up going back and fixing it once they realized it was a problem. Yeah. But that's why you need to have everybody in the room. Everybody's fighting, like, everybody's, yeah. yeah, fight it out. Yeah. And we have what you get is people just leave the room. Yeah, we had that problem at Lehman because they subcontracted a lot of the construction work out. And the union wasn't happy about it. And they also, you know, had some of those same issues. So it is, it, you know, the, the whole idea of Booker T. Washington and, and W.E.B. Du Bois sitting down at the same table talking about things really does have a, a merit to it. Yeah. No, absolutely. Look, I have on my wall that I keep, it's Malcolm X and Adam Clayton Powell. Yeah, okay. I see. Um, because to me, they represent these two separate uh, strains that we need, right? You need the outsider that's going to push and make, you know, make everybody uncomfortable so that some change happens. And then you need an insider who's going to be responsive to that and try to manipulate and work the system to try to accomplish some of the goals that the outsiders going together. And so what I liked about their relationship and everything I read about it is it really was one where they could have open conversation about mm -hmm. what they were up to even though they were approaching things from really different perspectives and didn't always agree on what, the, what it was and how to do it, but they were able to figure out what to do right for Harlem. That was such right. an intelligent way of approaching it, right? So who's <laughs> gonna be your counterpart? <laughs> well, black people aren't monolithic, so right. you know it's, it, it's a given that we have um, choices, you know, and, um, and we should exercise our choices too. So who's right and who's wrong depends on who's telling the story. So, Absolutely. I mean, look, you hear today, you know, one of the big questions everybody's talking about in the street is defund the police. And so when I talk to activists about this, one of the things that comes up with activists is um, what they really, what, what, some activists do want to get rid of the police. Yeah. Other people say oh, what they really want to do is take resources away from the police and put them in other places, mental health, education, social work. And that makes sense. So it's, it's a comp, to me, the, the slogan is, comp is too complicated. The slogan is too simple for the idea that's much more complicated. Mm -hmm. But when you talk to a lot of people who live in communities, like I, I grew up in Detroit, and when you talk to people who are there, what they'll say is they don't want to defund the police. What they want is to actually, they need more police resources because, you know, somebody got shot outside and the police took a half an hour to get here to figure out what's happening. 
So we can't take money away from the police. We need more police. So um, that's the reason why you need the activists in the room who are saying, let's try to st stop the problem before it gets to somebody shooting somebody outside in the street. But then you also need the people in the community who are like, but we also have a problem today that we have to figure out how we solve that problem today. So let's focus on tomorrow, long term, and let's figure out what we can do to make it right for people who live here today. I think they did a very nice move with, um, I can't remember her name, but they just promoted a black woman to be like a, a head of something in NYPD. Mm -hmm. the, first, the first one, she's a first, yeah. I know she's a okay. first. And I think that's as a reaction to some of the defunding, you know, that de Blasio was putting forward. But, you know, I, I like that idea of bringing together opposite opinions and viewpoints to solve a problem. And, and we do need input from both sides. We went, just went through this thing about taking down a lot of statues in the South and because of what they represented. Is that changing history? Is that revisionist history? I mean, what is well, first, I, I want to say the removing of statues offends one population, but are clearly celebrated by others. Um, there are two sides to that issue. And two perspectives is, is this racism or is it social justice? Or is it revising the perspective of history? history. Yeah. yeah, Richard, I, I think um, this one's, you know, it's hard because on one hand, you know, uh, let me say this. There's two different kinds. There's two different things at stake. People who were rebellious to the country, these Confederate soldiers and generals, in no other place in the world would you have people who are traitors to the country with monuments. Yes. <laughs> right? Yes. So that's easy to me. That's easy to me. Like those people, put them in a museum of Southern history somewhere, and we can go talk about what it means. What they do with the Nazis, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> like, let's, have a, let's have a whole conversation about it. But then there are people, because America has a history of racism and slavery and all the things that have happened to us over the last four centuries, um, there are people who, like Woodrow Wilson, who was a president, right? There's a whole controversy that, you know, at, at Princeton University about how to handle Woodrow Wilson, who had been president of Princeton. And there's a school named after him. And frankly, there's a, a, a big, um, a lot of people I was in school with were Woodrow Wilson fellows who were interested in, in public policy. So there's a lot of question about what to do with Woodrow Wilson. But he's a part of a, of a class of people in a racist society. And so I feel like you, to, to just try to pull Woodrow Wilson completely out of it erases an era that we should be having a conversation about. And so maybe what we do is um, next to Woodrow Wilson, instead of it being you get rid of Wilson, it's the Wilson King Center, <laughs> right? Okay. Or the Wilson okay. Boys Center. Right. And so you bring the two perspectives together and then let's talk about why it is we had, you know, why we added it and what the people, you know, represent. Why but you um, the president, you got the answer. That's, that's a great answer. <laughs> that's a great answer, really, because so many times it's got to be one or the other and kids don't even understand where racism came from. So right. taking Wilson out of it isn't maybe not the answer, but King definitely putting King there next to him is. It's really a great, great addition. Well, it gives I mean, you, you guys know this. You guys have been around. I mean, people are flawed, right? And yeah. so the other, the other thing that makes me nervous about the way we have conversations today is you got to have room for people to make mistakes. And you got to have room for people to grow. 
And so if we, you know, if we only dealt with Martin Luther King by the fact that he, uh, you know, cheated on Coretta, we wouldn't have a Martin Luther King holiday. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> so we got to have, we got to have some way to say, um, let's acknowledge the things about people that we don't like and let's deal with that. Right. But then let's also figure out the things about the, what they did that are, um, that are still, that are still relevant, you know, and, and mm. still matter. I mean, people say that about like Susan B. Anthony, you know, or some of the suffragettes who mm. got into fights with like, um, Frederick Douglass, you know, and, or Stanton, I think, not Susan B. Anthony, who got, mm. you know, got into fights with Frederick Douglass. And so because they had different opinions with Frederick Douglass that maybe they aren't people that we should regard as these feminist icons, mm -hmm. but they could be both good for feminism and racist. That's right. That's right. <laughs> That's right. It's true. Good. There it is. Right. Okay, we got to take a break. I served in the U.S. Army. I served in the Navy. Air Force. Marine Corps. Oorah. I was a 31 Bravo military police officer. Security forces. 82nd Airborne. Radio operator. SEAL Team 1. I was stationed at Camp Anaconda in Iraq. In Afghanistan. Vietnam. My service weapon was an M4 assault rifle. My service weapon was an M16. It's basically the same. You know what? It is the same. As the AR-15. Same weapon that's killed hundreds of people in the deadliest mass shootings in America. I know the power of this weapon firsthand. 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 And there is no reason. No reason. No reason why anyone other than military and law enforcement should have an assault weapon like this. I fought for this country. I believe in the Second Amendment and the right to bear arms. But that was created too hundred years ago. Guns have changed a lot since then. High-powered, rapid-fire assault rifles like the AR-15 are meant for one thing. One thing. One thing. That's not something I want in my country. My name is Corporal Aiken. My name is Specialist LaHaye. Petty Officer, Second Class Day. Corporal Williams. Sergeant Yen. Airman Batesel. Staff Sergeant Houseman. Corporal Henderson. Staff Sergeant Sayson. Corporal De Jesus. Specialist Delta. Captain Vernier. Senior Airman Rice. Specialist Parker. Petty Officer Williams. My name is Sergeant Bell, and I support the ban on military-style assault rifles and safer gun laws in this country. When you're homeless, your attitude becomes bad and brings out depression, and it brings out your PTSD, which is really not good because you get into that mode where you'll go back into the combat mode, thinking about someone else doing you bodily harm or trying to take whatever perimeter that you had. You see him over here by himself. 90% of the time, he's by himself because that's the way he protects himself. If you stayed in a certain area in more than a period of time, the majority of people didn't know what reason that you're homeless or what the problem is, and they'd end up calling the police on you. Police would come, well, after, you know, getting locked up two or three times, you was like, okay, well, I don't want to do that part no more. I survived it, but I really don't suggest it. You know, you, you know it's not such a good thing.
So we are back from the 13th floor, listening to a vet. And we're going to devote this last segment here to the upcoming elections, which is a real hot topic these days. Okay. Um, the, the thing is, is this, this is a near and dear um, subject to my heart. Because um, when we are in active military, we are charged with upholding the administrative decisions uh, for our country without question. I went to Vietnam, not really knowing much about the powers to be that sent me there or why. As veterans, we now hold a large voting block that politicians actively court. What do we need to know about today's power um, or, or powers to be um, as we go forward to the polls. Yeah, you know, you bring up a good point about um, the people who are making a lot of these decisions. I think that what you see is, uh, let's be, I'm just gonna be frank. The Republicans can't win without cheating. Yes. <laughs> I think yes. what they, I think in this, in this particular election, what they, what they have figured out is they can get the small group of people who really love Donald Trump to get, to show up. And if they can stop enough black and brown voters and young people from showing up or from voting for the Democrat, then uh, then on top of that, they do voter suppression and voter intimidation. Mm. And so that whole idea is to try to scare people out of voting, limit the number of voting machines, stop people, you know, challenge the votes in any place that's close, and then maybe there'll be a big mess on election day. And then we can all, you know, then they can try a whole bunch of other tricks, including stacking the Supreme Court to try to get, you know, try to try to pull a victory out without the people having voted for um, the current president. Um, it's a lot of ifs in there. I think, I, I think people aren't going to get took in this election. <laughs> I think that they've gone too far. And it's, yes. it's like, you know what it's like? It's like, if there's a library in a community. And you may not have been to that library in 20 years, but if somebody says they want to close the library, people will be out on the streets like, you can't close right, the library. Right. Up in arms, right. <laughs> right, they'll never go. The same thing I think is happening with voting. I think people are out here and they're like, well, look, um, you, you know, maybe I haven't voted in the last couple of elections, but I'll tell you what, you can't tell me I can't vote, right. you know, and right. then they'll try and show up. Uh, and so we got this whole dangerous thing about militias showing up at polling places, um, challenging ballots, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. I think what we're seeing right now in the places where people are starting to vote early around the country mm -hmm. is the lines are wrapped around the are wrapped around the block of people saying, "Not today, sir. <laughs> Not today, sir. You got to go. You got to go, bro." Yeah. Because it's something historically, even before our time <laughs> and people that that voter suppression was a real thing i mean yeah. it, you took your life into your hands to go to vote it was no lightweight you know idea even after you got the right in 65 you know there was still lots and lots of of i would say even stronger word than suppression it was yeah you know, people oh yeah denial taking their lives murdering away. people yes. okay let's be real about that because um you actually did take your life in your hands when you went to the polls um you, you didn't even have to get to the polls on your way to the polls right, right. 
Okay, right. um, they're gonna stop you and you know try to um, scare you out of um, or intimidate you uh, from voting and suppress that right of yours. And but unfortunately, a lot of people died um, during that process for that process, right? So it's hard to take it so naively to say that um, yes, they're trying to take away our votes. No, they're not trying anymore. Okay, they went a lot further than trying now. Oh yeah, you know. So that's that's the whole question here. Um, now what? Yeah, you no. Know, I think we got to come up with some creative ways. I mean, one thing I've been thinking about is the role churches can play uh, in making sure people show up and vote. Uh, and 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 one show up and vote. And I know uh, one of the things that some churches are doing this thing called five, arrive with five. So everybody bring five right. people with them to the polls, or you make sure five people have done their early ballots and they filled them out. And if everybody does that, it works. But imagine if these guys showed up, you know, with semi-automatic weapons and beards and Confederate flags and all that to try to stop people. Imagine if they were met by a church choir right. in robes, okay. right? Singing, okay. <laughs> you, know, okay. you know, in front of them. Will they gun you them know. down? Yeah, I think that yeah. shuts them down. I think yeah. that shuts them down. Mm -hmm. and, and all the people with cell phone video capturing that and sending that all over the world saying like here, I mean, if we're standing up, if we're fighting for the soul of this country. And I think that's legitimate. I think it's real. Yeah. yeah. Yes. yes. It is. Right. Like there, there are people who want to take this country back to a place that we haven't seen in generations where, you know, straight, rich, white men got all the first money, first fruit and everybody else got whatever was left over. I mean, that's really their agenda. And I think that's why Donald Trump is so popular is because there are people who just want to stop the Barack Obamas. They want to stop the Richard and Susan. They want to stop the Jamal and Jules. They want to stop all of us from being able to do what it is that we do just you know, openly. Like they want to force us back into the shadows and into the closets. And so I think they are really pushing on that and if they get their way, they're, they, they have a chance of being able to restart a country that is like that. So the rest of us, even I think you're seeing some of these Republicans who say, like, listen, I'm a conservative. There are things that I believe in. But I do kind of think America ought to work by, by some rules, <laughs> you know, and mm -hmm. we fought through, yeah. you know, some pretty big fights in this country to establish a set of rules that everybody's supposed to play by. We can argue about what happens after that. But right now, we got to at least get back to the rules. Yes. Yeah. And I think those rules are something that can help join those op opposing forces. You know, one of the things about the vice presidential debate was that at least it was civil. You yeah. Know, I have to say that the presidential debate, I clicked it off, but at least, <laughs> at least the, they were still winning. And a lot of people say, you know, I wish those two were running, you, you know, it would be a better choice than <laughs> Yeah, but, but you know, the fact of the matter is some of them don't play by the rules, okay? No. And no. then you have to understand that you're fighting a losing battle with the rules. That's right. Okay? So they, they're saying, yeah, you're playing by the rules, but I don't have to. So. Yep. I think we're going to have to come up with a whole new set of rules. I think yes. that's part... That's part of what's going to happen is we're going to have to change some of the rules because what we have seen now is that things that we thought were rules weren't really rules, mm -hmm. right? Like who thought the president of the United States could run an international company from the Oval Office? Right. <laughs> but that's what's happening. Like, yes. You know, yes. You have foreign governments that come to this country and they 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 buy hotel rooms 
at yes. the president's hotel. Right. They don't even stay in the hotel rooms. Right. No. Right. Right. out the floor. That's yeah. how they get to Just put a little tip in the jar, right. you know, on the way into the hotel. Put right. a little something right. in the guys, yeah. you know, yeah. Yeah. Mm. put a little something in the host's pocket. Mm. That's what's happening in our national government. And I just think, um, you know, we thought, we thought that people would do this by, uh, because they had some level of principle or they would be embarrassed mm. because they would be stories are written about them or that the senators and the people in the Congress would hold them accountable for following the decorum. But now we find out none of that's really true. Right. So we got to create laws to do things that we thought we could do just by having customs and tradition. And now we're going to have to create some laws for it. But, but we're still faced with the, with, with the preliminary fact that we're fighting against people who don't cherish rules. Okay, so no matter how much rules we adjust or change, you know, um, their whole issue is we're not going to abide by them. So now what? You know, like, so what? I punch you in the face and you're hurt. Then we need to get a militia on this side too, I think. Yeah, I, I, I think, you know, I, I agree with you that the church choir should confront them, but I also think that church choir should be backed by another militia <laughs> to say that you get past them, <laughs> now you got to deal with us. <laughs> well, there are, people, to, there are people who believe that. And I think- Yeah, it's got to be I some think, deterrent, you know? I think there's, there's got to be deterrent. But what, what we've found in the past is that when, when bullies are confronted, not just by other fighters, but when bullies are confronted by people of good faith, that um, one, the bully tends to back down because- of own fact. And then also everybody else who's watching, right? Because yes. you got all, each one of these fights is not happening in a vacuum. You think about what happened in Birmingham when the dogs were attacking kids, right? Yeah. Like it was horrible, right? And the kids, yes. but, it, but, but all across the country, there were like these women who were watching television who were like, oh, that can't happen in the United States of America. Right. <laughs> you know, we can't do that. That can't happen. Right. And I think that's where the point where we are, where mm -hmm. like this con this plot to kidnap the governor of Michigan. Right. I think that's one of these moments. I think that's something yeah. that broke through for people. Like, wait, 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 wait. Hold on, right. <laughs> right. Hold up here. This has gone just a little bit. It's a little bit too far. A lot too far. Because <laughs> she wasn't the only one. It was also talking about kidnapping. Virginia. Yeah. Oh yeah, the governor of Virginia. That's true. Yeah. So you know how? How do we know how far that plot? actually was going to you know how how far do we know how far it extended you know yeah well here's how what's comforting here's what's comforting and as a veteran you should you should appreciate this the military has come out basically and said that, that they're not going to be used by this president anymore to enforce domestic rules we know people in the intelligence this is the thing that's crazy if you had probably told a trap brown or stokely carmichael <laughs> that one day there was going to be a black guy who was president of the United States named Barack Hussein Obama from yeah. the south side of Chicago. Yes, yes. He was going to be the most popular president of his generation, embraced by business leaders and military people and people on the street and all around the world. And then after him was going to be a rich white dude from New York. <laughs> Not really rich, though. Okay. Yeah. Rich. Well, that is rich as he says, right? <laughs> but some rich white dude from New York, and he was going to be reviled by right. everybody. <laughs> like the whole world would the be turning. Yeah. I bet you H. Rap Brown and Stephanie Carmichael would have told you you were crazy. Right. No yeah. way in the world America was going to have that kind of situation. Right. But you know, it's tricky. America is tricky. 
<laughs> you never know what's gonna happen. That's true. That's true. <laughs> All righty, Brett. You want to do the last question? Yeah. You posted this statement, and, and uh -oh. yeah, that's what I was saying. Be uh -oh. You posted this statement. I've spent um, time with enough rich and powerful people to know that there is no wizard in the penthouse who has um, it all figured out. Uh, it's, it's just Richard Richard Pryor. Pryor with a sound machine. We have to fix this on our own. <laughs> okay, I really appreciated that statement because. I was actually looking for Richard Pryor in that sound machine. <laughs> so now with that being said, where do we go with this? You know, what uh, exactly it, did you mean? I mean, it gets back to something you, Richard, were, were, start, were starting to, to get us to, I think, a minute ago, which is the rules are one thing, but we're going to have to enforce some of this stuff on our own. We're going to have to create the dynamics in our own communities. And I think... Um, I think we got to make some decisions. Again, we just talked about the country's changing and we got to figure it out. But, you know, our kids have to go to schools where they're being prepared for a global economy, right? right? And that means that they're going to have to learn more math and more science than maybe th that we've been teaching them. And we're going to have to make sure they got enough food to eat and they got a social services provider inside the school, a couple of them, who can take care of the ones who have real challenges. But like what we can't do though, is just keep doing the things that we have always done the same way and then think that's gonna work out or just blame other people for the problem. Right. Because the truth is in a lot of our communities and families, we can start to address some of this stuff and hold people accountable. And if we can get, for me, I think about it now, especially as a parent, but I think about it not just about the next two or five years, but the next 25 years. And the last thing I want is for my kids to spend their 30s and 40s and 50s thinking about the same problems that I spent my 30s and 40s thinking about. Right, they right. new problems. I know they're gonna have other problems. They're not gonna solve problems. Yeah. But like the same way I don't have to worry about drinking from a colored water fountain anymore. Like I don't want my kids to have to worry about whether or not they can get funded for like they got a new a new company they want to start but 987 percent of the funding for companies goes to white guys and black mm -hmm. people only get two percent yeah. like or they got to live in 75 percent of the funding for companies happens in new york massachusetts and california so if they live in dc or michigan or atlanta that no, Dakota, for a company because nobody wants to invest in them yeah. like we have got to fix those kind of problems so that we can create the businesses. And when we create businesses, those businesses can hire more people of color and they can give people second chances who get come out of jail and help them get restarted. And then they can put leverage on the politicians to make sure the politicians do the things that we want them to do to keep our community safe. But I think if we don't figure out how to change the power equation and to make black people competitive in the current economic environment that is facing the world, we're gonna keep having the same conversations for the next 20 or 40 years. Wow, that was great. Powerful. That brings us to the end of our segment, the last segment for the day. And this has been so wonderful. Thank yeah. you so much for doing it's this. It's been fun, Jamal. It was fun. I, I appreciate it's it. Thank you for calling me and asking me. I appreciate it a lot. It's, yeah. it's encouraging to hear you talk in the way, in the manner that you do it. And so frankly and, yeah. you know, uh, and, and informed. <laughs> and so 
Are you gonna run for president or something? Oh uh, like no, that? ma'am. <laughs> <laughs> Not happening. Come no, ma'am. Y'all don't have to worry about that. <laughs> okay, all right. Well, I hope you get keep your journalism career going. And yeah, if it's anything it's we can do to help, sir. that's what we're here for. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you having me. And well, we're here early before they wake up. We stay late. We stay informed. We invest in the latest technology. We take the time to train the next generation of doctors and nurses. We work together to make sure we heal their bodies and their minds. We do this not because it's our job, but because this is about our veterans' lives. This is our mission. More than 300,000 of us working as one together with families and loved ones. No matter where they live in this country, we'll be there. We all come together and stand together to serve our veterans. We stand strong, united. Stand with us in caring for our veterans. Dear Father. Dear Rosie. You're reading only one note from me today. This is not the note about my struggles. And difficulties. That I'm insignificant or that I'm weak. I suffer constant pain. Guilt. And misery. This is not a note of sorrow. Not today. Not in this note. Today in this note, I'm thanking you. Thank you for helping me. Thank you. Thank you for talking to me, praying for me. You gave me back everything such a simple thing. It's because of you I'm not writing that other note. Let's stop the veteran suicide epidemic. Contact the National Veterans Foundation. Visit mvf.org. The worst part of war should not be coming home.